So the Bible reading for this morning comes from Luke chapter 9. So if you've got your Bible there or your phone or device, um, turn to Luke chapter 9. And we're going to read from verses 28 through to 56. Luke 9, 28 to 56. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at, what Jesus, at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Listen carefully to what I am about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For it is the one who is least among you, or least among you all, who is the greatest. Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. At the time, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messages on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, 
Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. Thanks for reading that, Annette. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Steve. I'm one of the student ministers, and it's my privilege to open uh, this passage we have before us uh, this morning. Uh, But before I do that, how about I ask God to help us as we all uh, meditate on what he has to say to us through Luke 9. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of every heart in this room and every heart listening online uh, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, special welcome to you if you're online. There's a few things that are going to be on the slides that you may not be able to see that are a little bit important for this, but that's okay. We'll be able to hopefully catch up down the track. What I've got on the screen here is something that I saw uh, in the early 90s. Uh, This was a fad that kind of came and went pretty quickly. It's probably a bit hard to see with the light, uh, but you may have seen pictures like these. Uh, They're often... Um, messy collages of things called magic eye pictures. Now, with these pictures, if you were to look at them in the right way, you'd actually see a three-dimensional image popping off the page, or on the screen in this instance. Now, it always caught my imagination, these things, because I didn't know how a two-dimensional image could suddenly pop out into a third-dimensional one. But more than that is I was one of the few people in my family that could see the images without needing to put the book right up to my face and slowly moving it back, if you know what I'm talking about. You see, if you know what to do with these images, then behind me you'd see a lion and a lioness in front of it, and then her cub sitting in front of that. And if you're really keen, you might even see a butterfly in front of the cub. But whether you can see this or not... Uh, You should still be able to make some of the the faces in the collage. You'll probably see a few little lion faces sort of in repetition side by side. But only if you know how to look at these images will you get a clear three-dimensional image of these lions. Now, if you don't see it, uh, don't worry. Uh, You either didn't live through the 90s or no one has ever shown you how to do these before. But unless you have someone teach you or you've read the instructions for this, Uh, you're not going to see the image truly for what it is. You're not going to see the glory that kind of sits behind this bland image on the screen. Now, we've spent 14 weeks, right, a long time, 14 weeks in Luke's Gospel. And the question I want to ask all of you is this. After 14 weeks in Luke's Gospel, are you seeing Jesus clearly? And this is the title I've given uh, to point one on the outline. After 14 weeks in Luke's gospel, are you seeing Jesus clearly? Well, it's been a a bit of a whirlwind of a ride through chapters four to nine. uh, And I think after spending this much time uh, plotting through Jesus' teachings, uh, seeing his actions, uh, all this stuff throughout his Galilean ministry, which is the name we give to chapters four to nine, it's only fair to ask you a third time, After 14 weeks in Luke's gospel, are you seeing Jesus clearly? I think it's fair to say that like these magic eye pictures, uh, many of the Pharisees that we had come across in the passages, uh, in fact, many others in the gospel, even just stand people that stand on the, the sidelines, they didn't see Jesus for who he truly is. 
But contrasting this, just last week, uh, it may have appeared as though the disciples finally got it right, that they could see Jesus clearly. I mean, Jesus took them straight to the punchline. He asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And his disciples, basically the question he's asking them, do you see me clearly? Now, Peter responds on behalf of the group, you are God's Messiah, in verse 20. So it's obvious by this stage that the disciples got it, right? They could see Jesus clearly. They understood his mission. No doubt they knew he had to go to Jerusalem and die for the sins of the world. Or did they? Is there a chance that they're still looking at the collage, that they don't really know what they're saying when they affirm that Jesus is the Messiah? Well, this passage we have today, this is the passage that answers this question for us. And it's a question Luke wants all of us here today to ponder. It's the question he's putting to Theophilus, the guy that he wrote this gospel for, and all of Theophilus' friends, and everyone who has read this gospel all throughout history, including you and me today. Are you seeing Jesus clearly? And so with that, we're going to go to point two uh, on the outlines. Uh, This is where we're going to spend probably the bulk uh, of this morning in. Uh, Point two, the disciples show us that literally seeing Jesus doesn't guarantee that we truly see him. Now, on occasion, I do ponder uh, what it would take for me uh, to truly see Jesus and in so doing to to go on then and live a life that's 100% consistent with this calling. Um, Have you ever had anyone do this this thought experiment with you where they say, look, if you could travel to any uh, era or any period throughout history, you know, which era would that be? If you could spend, you know, one day there, 24 hours? Or a similar question, if, if you could meet anyone from all throughout history, who would that be? Because my pious answer to this question would undoubtedly be the first century, so I could meet Jesus. But I think the reason, uh, deep down, that this is my choice is because I want to truly see Jesus with my own eyes. I think deep down that, that by having this personal experience, somehow uh, being seeing him in, in action, maybe doing a miracle here and there, that this would motivate me to then live for him more wholeheartedly than ever. All doubts would cease. I would finally be, un, be able to understand him and his mysterious ways fully. Or in other words, I may finally be able to see him clearly. But as much as we might think that, that living in the first century and literally seeing Jesus in action... You know, seeing him interact in the material world in kind of supernatural ways or or healing people here and there, that this might somehow cause us to live for him better. Well, Luke argues in chapter 9 that this in reality doesn't guarantee that we will see Jesus clearly. It simply won't. You see, part of the irony of this chapter uh, that Annette had read to us is that by now, All the disciples had seen many miracles. They'd seen many healings. They'd seen many signs and wonders. And even now, they're participating firsthand in these things. If you go back to the the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, you see Jesus gives them authority to start healing people and casting out demons and all this kind of exciting stuff. And yet, 
no less than five times in this final section of chapter 9, the disciples are pictured as fools, as hotheads, as little children squabbling over who is the greatest among them. Ultimately, they're pictured as not understanding Jesus or his mission at all. But the real kicker in all of this is that these examples of the disciples being weak and pathetic sits right at the tail end of his Galilean ministry. In other words, right before he sets his face firmly on Jerusalem to bring on his death for the sins of the world. And we'll see uh, in a moment that Jesus, right, he's running the gauntlet to Jerusalem from this point on in Luke's gospel. And his disciples, in some sense, should be championing his humble mission as the Lamb of God. But despite this, their actions demonstrate that they're not seeing Jesus clearly at all. They haven't really fully understood yet what he has come to do. And for Peter, James and John, these three close disciples specifically, well, to some degree, they're without excuse because they were granted front row seats, gold class, VIP tickets to what should have been the most explicit display of Jesus' power and authority so far in the gospel. That is the transfiguration. So if anyone was to get it, if anyone was to see Jesus clearly and understand his mission, it should have been them. And yet the rest of chapter 9, as we'll soon see, shows us they hadn't yet truly seen him. So what we're going to do, we're going to take a brief look uh, at this incredible event, the transfiguration. And what I want you to do is keep in the back of your own minds whether or not you think that seeing this, if you were there that day, whether this would be enough for you to see Jesus clearly. So the event unfolds uh, like this, beginning at verse 28. Uh, Jesus takes Peter, James and John, uh, some of his closest disciples, up a mountain to pray. And while they're up there, Jesus' face begins to change in its appearance. His clothes, they get given a heavenly dose of bleach, uh, to the point where they look like the brightness of a flash of lightning, the text tells us. Now, if this isn't amazing enough, uh, the next thing you know, Moses and Elijah appear. But not necessarily as their earthly selves. We're, we're told in verse 30 that they appear in glorious splendor. Now, this could mean that they're also uh, shining along with Jesus in a way, or that they're just significant players uh, in kind of the, the overall biblical narrative. You know, they, they're glorious in, in honor or majesty. And it's hard to know which one Luke is addressing here, but what we do know is that hundreds of years later, they're back. These two greats from history past are back, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, before we look at what they're talking about... It's worth asking the question, why Moses and Elijah? And if you know your biblical theology, you might be asking, why not Abraham? I mean, he was given the promises. You know. Why not King David, you know, who, who also received a great promise from God that, that his lineage would be the, the one that brings on Jesus? You know, or, or maybe Ezekiel? All these guys have pretty significant places in the biblical story, so why wasn't it them? Well, on the one hand, Moses, well, he's a representation of the law. After all, he was given the Ten Commandments, and, and Elijah, well, 
he's listed as one of basically the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. So there's one sense in which these two represent the whole Old Testament canon, right? Often referred to as the law and the prophets, or the law of Moses and the prophets, as Luke himself says in chapter 24. But there's more than this going on. You see, in the last book of the Old Testament, uh, the book of Malachi, the last one before we get 400 years of silence and then Jesus comes onto the scene, in chapter 4, it's both Moses and Elijah that are the precursors to the end times, the final age. And now they're here, they're here with Jesus, signalling that everything the Old Testament was pointing to is now here in the form of Jesus. They're two key players that point us to the arrival of the final great prophet. That's why Moses and Elijah are there with Jesus. Now, having uh, said this, I think what's more striking is the topic of their discussion. You see, in verse 31, we're told that they're actually talking with Jesus about his uh, departure, which he was going to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem, which is just another way of saying his death on the cross, which was going to come later. Literally, though, uh, the word is his exodus, uh, which is about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Now, I don't say this very often, but if you're a note taker, this is really, really worth writing down. Uh, this is one of those little gems uh, that highlights quite a lot and unlocks a lot about our understanding of the passage. Um, it's so important that, in fact, some of your Bibles may already have this footnoted saying the word Exodus here. You see, this word, it carries uh, very significant meaning. Uh, in the Bible, way, way, way back, we read of Moses, funnily enough, one of the two that's on the mountain right now, Moses enacting the original Exodus by leading the Israelites out of slavery to Egypt. He did this through a parted Red Sea, and by doing this, God had saved his people. He had delivered them and established them as a people of his own on the other side. In fact, there's a whole uh, book whose beginning is dedicated to this. Do you know what the book's called? Exodus. <laughs> but now Luke, in, in Luke, Jesus and Moses, along with Elijah, are speaking about a new Exodus. Luke's choice of words, it's very, very deliberate here. Jesus speaks about a new Exodus in which he saves his people from slavery, not to Egypt or even to Rome, which some of them probably thought, but this time from their slavery to sin and death, and then establish a new people for himself, the church, which we read about in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. Now, while all of this is happening, all this exciting stuff is going on, meanwhile on the sidelines, uh, you have Peter. I think Rodney gave us a pretty, pretty good caricature of him at the beginning here, right? He has the bright idea of building these men uh, tents, or literally tabernacles, but Luke also adds the little comment, uh, as was highlighted in the NIV, you'd, you'd probably see it in brackets, uh, telling us that he did not know what he was saying. Now, poor Peter, uh, yeah, he does. He cops a lot of bad press uh, in the Gospels. Uh, in fact, his most famous action uh, to date is his denial of Jesus. Pretty, pretty big stuff up. And so it may look as though 
we're being told that Peter just blurted out another comment thoughtlessly, and to some extent, maybe that's true. But I want you to hold your judgment for just one second. Because Peter, he certainly has had his moments, but I think Luke's point here is not that he just blurted out something without thinking necessarily. Rather, Luke's telling us, the reader, that he didn't understand the full import of what he had just said. Right? It's very similar to, to his confession that Jesus is the Messiah back in verse 20. Right? What he said wasn't wrong. In fact, what he said, dare I say, was perfect. But the full measure of what he meant, or what this means, had escaped him. And we'll keep going, and we'll see what I mean by this in a second. Because God, what he does is he grants Peter's request in a very subtle way. You see, God does the job of bringing the tent himself. He provides a cloud to cover them all. Now again, if we cast our minds way back uh, to the tabernacle of the Old Testament, uh, you have this, this central tent. It's very, very tiny in the picture there. But you have this central tent, and Moses had finished building this, and all the Israelites sat around it, And when it was finished, a cloud came and covered it as a physical sign of God's presence. This is God saying, I am dwelling with you. You could even say God was was camping with them, if you could be that crude. He was camping with his people. And so here, again, the cloud is a way of God answering Peter's request. God brings the tent and demonstrates that he is certainly with us, though this time in the form of Jesus. But the most important thing in all of this is what happens next. After the cloud comes and descends on them all, there's an audible voice that speaks from the cloud. And this voice says, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. And not long after this, the cloud disappears along with Moses and Elijah, and they're left with just Jesus alone. What a day. What a day for Peter, James, and John to be alive. What a day. You'd think that an experience like this, right, after all we've just gone through, this would be the one, right? This would be the experience that pumps you up to follow Jesus to the end, to, to obey him wherever that leads you in life, even to the point of death. In fact, before denying Jesus three times, Peter actually says this exact thing. Uh, If you want to write it down, chapter 22, verse 33. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and even to death. But I want to argue that even seeing Jesus like this, in all of his unsheathed glory, like here in the Transfiguration, well, this doesn't guarantee that you've seen Jesus clearly. In fact, shortly after, uh, Peter screams from the hilltops that he's ready to die for his Messiah. What does he do? Almost straight away, there's, there's barely a breath between him saying that and him cowardly running away when Jesus gets arrested in the garden. And later, as we've covered, he denies having even met Jesus several times. Seeing Jesus even in all of his glory, doesn't guarantee that you've truly seen him. 
seeing his miracles with your own eyes like the rest of the disciples did doesn't guarantee that you've seen Jesus clearly. Following him around as he forgives sins and calms storms doesn't guarantee that you've seen Jesus clearly. You see, it's easy to get lost in all the excitement of, of miracles and the supernatural, of visions and prophecies. It's easy to get lost in the excitement of seeing a transfigured Jesus right before your eyes and then go on to forget what he's actually trying to teach us, to forget what he's actually trying to say to us. And Luke here in chapter 9, well, he does a pretty bang-up job of demonstrating this point because immediately after the transfiguration, Luke records some of the most unflattering, uncensored pictures of the disciples in the entire gospel. Now, we're only going to skim them today, uh, but I encourage you to keep uh, the Bibles open from verse 37 onwards uh, and maybe even read these stories again in your quiet time in light of the transfiguration. So the first story we get, uh, it's of a man who has a demon-possessed son. It's rather confronting. Uh, A spirit seizes the son, the text says, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. It's kind of scary stuff. Kind of like the wind howling when I make a really important point. But I think the real kicker here is the following verse, which is on the screen. I begged the disciples to drive it out, but they could not. These disciples of Jesus, who in verse 1 of this chapter had been given power and authority to drive out demons and cure diseases, couldn't drive this one out. It's curious, to say the least. After dealing with the demon himself, uh, Jesus, he turns to his disciples and rebukes them. Uh, And in verse 44, he restates his mission as the Messiah. This is where they should be opening their ears and having a listen. He says he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. Now, it's obvious here uh, that he's talking about his death. uh, as We've already seen him say this in very clear terms back in verse 22. So you'd think this is a no-brainer. But we're told that the disciples didn't understand what this meant in verse 45, that it was hidden from them and that they were afraid to ask about it. It's funny because, I mean, They saw him do tons of miracles over the last few years, and they were never afraid of asking him for an explanation of teachings he'd done in the past. So why not now? What's going on here? Again, if this isn't enough, verse 46 uh, tells us that an argument started among his disciples as to who would be the greatest. Goodness. You see, these disciples, they've seen Jesus, They've heard him speak. They know what the kingdom of God is like, or at least they should know by now. And yet it's pretty obvious that they really don't. And while it's fair to say that these other disciples, uh, they weren't privy to the full extent of Jesus' glory in the transfiguration, you know, they weren't really there. They didn't kind of get the the full dose of it. Well, Luke covers that base as well. He specifically throws James and John under the bus, the two that were there at the transfiguration. John speaks. He says, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not one of us. Jesus' response, 
Don't stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. Now, we could go into the details of what that means. We could go back and do it for all the other cases here, trying to understand what Jesus is actually trying to say. But I think it's better for us to stick to the point here and to realize that Jesus is effectively telling John that he still doesn't get it. And if one rebuke from Jesus wasn't enough, he does it again in verse 55 after James and John ask permission to call fire down from heaven to smite their Samaritan enemies. It's a fantasy I'm sure we've all had at various moments in our lives, you know, when the boss is breathing down your necks about deadlines, you know, friends are making fun of you in school. But this isn't the way of Jesus. He loves the Samaritans, in fact. They play an important role as early recipients of the gospel in Luke and Acts. And I think this is made obvious uh, because the twist of the knife is in the very next chapter, right? In chapter 10 of Luke's gospel is one of Jesus' parables. And in this parable, he talks about a Samaritan, a good Samaritan, I might add, who plays a heroic role in one of Jesus' parables. So these sons of Zebedee, James and John, who, who saw the transfiguration, they knew that Jesus was God's Messiah, they still didn't see Jesus or understand his mission of humility and rejection and suffering and death to save even their enemies. But you know what? They should have understood had they opened their ears and listened to him. You see, if their ears were open, they wouldn't be speaking about who is the greatest among them. They wouldn't be wanting to bring down fire on the Samaritans. They wouldn't be stopping people from participating alongside with them in the work of the kingdom. And they would have understood that Jesus' mission was to suffer and die for the sins of the world. Because he's already said that several times now. Verse 22, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests of the law and teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Can't really get much more obvious than that. Verse 31, Jesus chatting with Moses and Elijah on that mountain about his departure, his, his exodus, his death, which he's going to fulfill in Jerusalem. In verse 44, Jesus says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. And he goes on to say, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Had his disciples listened to Jesus, Luke may have written these final few verses of chapter 9 very differently. So a good place to start seeing Jesus clearly is to listen to him. Because obviously from, from what we've just read, uh, even seeing Jesus transformed into a flashing spectacle of glory in front of our own eyes, even this doesn't appear to be enough for some. In fact, I want to argue that, that if we saw the transfiguration here today, there would still be many of us in this room who would continue to struggle with doubts about God. Because seeing miracles... Seeing the supernatural, this is not God's primary way of helping us see him. It's like seeing the collage, those things. It's like seeing the magic eye picture. Yes, you can see every ink blot, you can see every pixel, every fine detail. 
But not to listen to Jesus is like ignoring the instructions on how to truly see the picture. We don't see Jesus without first listening to him. And this brings us very briefly, uh, as we wrap up, uh, to point three. A good place to start seeing Jesus clearly is to listen to him. So to truly see Jesus, there's a bit of an irony here, it involves opening our ears. This is the big reveal of the transfiguration. Right When God speaks from the cloud and says, this is my son whom I have chosen, listen to him. He doesn't say, look and see and be amazed. Although that's probably part of what they see and part of what they experience. But his primary thing is listen to Jesus. Because if we were to open our ears and listen to him, we'd be assured of many of the things that we've already covered in the first 14 weeks in Luke. We'd listen to Jesus, and if we did, then we'd see his authority and his power to forgive our sin, no matter how terrible our sin is. In fact, we'd see him so clearly that it should prevent us from arguing over who's the greatest among us, because we know the depths of our own sin. Do you compare yourself to others at church? Do you give yourself kind of a, a pat on the back when you're doing pretty good compared to the person next to you? You know, start little rumours about what's going on in the lives of those around you, even though you've got no clue. See, if we listen to Jesus, again, we'll, we'll, we'd be hungry for God's word. We'd endeavour to explore it and understand it because we believe that God speaks through his word and that this is absolutely fundamental, therefore, to listen to him speak through it, even through the curly and difficult parts. And this is why here at Kenmore, we don't just focus on the New Testament. We, we jump around everywhere in the Bible and try to sit there for as long a period as we can to really understand what God is saying. But I think the comfort we have in a passage like today's is that if you're feeling kind of flat, if you're feeling like you're just not getting it, you know, your heart isn't in the right place to receive the word of God, well, take courage from the fact that those who were closest to Jesus on many occasions didn't get it either. But it's also worth reminding yourself that they did eventually get it with the help of the Holy Spirit in Acts. And so I think a good place to start listening to God, a good place to start seeing him clearly, especially if you feel right now that you're in a season where you're paddling upstream, is to ask him in prayer for a heart that is open to hear his voice, a heart that is willing to hear some difficult truths and to be confronted with your own inadequacy and need for grace. To be confronted with the need to redirect your life and its trajectory. To redirect your priorities to reflect the priorities of the king. But not just any king. The king who in today's passage set his face to Jerusalem, determined to die for your sin. So that you can live free and full and experience forgiveness from him even in the times where you are stumbling and struggling along. 
Seeing this, hearing Jesus, knowing his mission, this is what enables us to stand on two feet and to give our lives over to him. So to close, I want to ask you again one more time. After 14 weeks in Luke's gospel, are you seeing Jesus clearly? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that as we wrap up our time in Luke, that Luke had recorded down for us many of the things that Jesus had said and done. Lord, I pray for those struggling, pray for those who are in a dry season in their walk with you. Lord, I pray that they would open their ears and hear your voice through your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit would revive all of us here this morning that we would have a thirst and a hunger to listen to you, and in so doing, know that we see you clearly. So Lord, I pray by your spirit that you would soften our hearts to the hearing of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name.